and turn to the prophecy of Micah. In our text this evening, as we come back to pay one last visit to Micah, will be the final three verses of the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Who is like you? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Lord our God, as we come to the scriptures once again now we ask you to open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word we ask you to open our eyes that we may behold Christ our Savior exalted and lifted up and that he uh, would be glorified and that he through his spirit would minister to us even through the ministry of the word this evening we ask it in his name amen This morning, uh, in Pastor Mark's sermon from Jude, you may recall that uh, he took a word from the text. It was actually one of the points in his sermon outline. Uh, it was the word condemnation. And he made reference to the fact that the whole notion of condemnation is unpopular, and there are people out there, even people who may profess to be Christians, who are troubled by the thought that God would condemn anyone. And uh, some people are offended by that word, offended that it appears in Scripture. Or maybe they're just surprised by it. And Pastor Mark made this point. What should really surprise us is not that God condemns sinners, but what should really surprise and even amaze us is that God would save sinners, that he would forgive sins. And that sense of amazement, that sense of surprise that the true and living God forgives sin kind of comes out in this passage from Micah. Micah seems to erupt, burst out with praise to God in a sense of astonishment that God would pardon iniquity. As we come to this text, granted we're taking it out of context, but we've been doing that ever since I finished our, our series in the Minor Prophets, and I've been going back and selecting a text from several of them to preach the gospel to you from these prophets. And so we're not getting the full context. But I want to stress the fact that we cannot appreciate the magnitude of this good news without considering these verses in the context of the rest of Micah's prophecy. From that context, Micah breaks out into praise to God. He's astounded. Do you get the sense of that from these words? He's astounded 
that God forgives sins. But what we find from these verses is that the living and true God is worthy of all praise for his mercy to sinners. The living and true God is worthy of all praise for his mercy that he shows to sinners. Um, Pastor Mark's outline this morning was alliterated, and mine is too. We didn't plan that. It just, uh, just happened. So our three points tonight are predicament, pardon, and praise. Sinners have a predicament that they face, and then we'll consider the pardon of God, and we'll then see that he is worthy of praise. So first of all, the predicament. You don't really see the predicament on the, lying on the surface of this text so much. I guess you, you sort of do a little bit. But it's, it's implied more than anything. Um, there's nothing in the text that we're looking at this evening that has uh, a warning, a prophetic warning or an oracle against sinners. Uh, there's no indictment spelled out in these verses. All you have is a de- declaration of pardon. And so, taken out of context, the predicament that we're going to be discussing this evening, that we're going to be looking at, is um, it's assumed, but it's not explained. It's a little bit like um, one of my very favorite gospel verses in, in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It's a glorious passage about forgiveness of sins, about the gospel, about pardon. But if you take that one verse out of context, you don't really get uh, what the big deal is. Romans 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. But the predicament there is implied too, isn't it? There is now no condemnation, strongly implying and, in, and really uh, necessitating that at some point there was condemnation. We did face that. So there's no explanation of the predicament in this text. So we're going to just reflect very briefly on a few things from earlier in Micah so that the prophet Micah himself can provide for us the context and explain the predicament. Uh, And the predicament is this. Sinners stand condemned before God. Like the word or not, it's true. Sinners uh, are worthy of condemnation, and God pronounces them guilty because of their sin. So if you go back to chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to summarize. What we see in chapter 1 of Micah is that the wrath of God is coming. It's coming upon his covenant people. And it's coming because of persistent, rampant idolatry. In chapter 2, we find that the people are condemned because because they're guilty of oppression. They're guilty of covetousness. And in their midst, there are all these false prophets claiming to speak in the name of the Lord when the Lord did not send them, saying things that the Lord did not command them to say. Chapter 3, we find that in the leadership of the people, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, whether you're talking civil leadership or religious leadership, it was true of both. There was corruption, rampant corruption amongst the leadership of the people. And you, we could go on, we'll just stop there, but you see the point. Uh, there is tremendous guilt upon the people of Israel, and that's the predicament. In all these things, the, the idolatry, the covetousness, the oppression, the corruption in leadership, 
all among a people who were called by the name of the true and living God. Now we see terms in our passage tonight in Micah, several terms or labels used to refer to man's disobedience toward God. And I want to take a look at a few of them. First of all, you see the term iniquity used. It occurs twice in our passage this evening. It comes from the Hebrew word avon, and it simply refers to an infraction of some kind, an infraction of the rules, an infraction of the law. It speaks of, it's a a designation for crooked behavior. It carries with it a sense of guilt for that crooked behavior or for that infraction. The second word we see is transgression. You see that in verse 18 as well. It comes from the Hebrew word pesha, and it's a reference to rebellion. It speaks of a casting off of authority, and in particular, the authority of God himself. And that's what's translated transgression in our text. And then finally, you have a much more generic word, uh, the word sin. It occurs in the text. That comes from the Hebrew word kathath, and that's the word most, in the Old Testament scriptures, that is the word that's most frequently used simply to describe sin and to refer to sin in general. Um, now, all these words have different nuances, but they're not talking about different things, ultimately. They're all talking about one thing. They're all a reference pointing back to sin. And, uh, you know, there, there's a tendency sometimes for people when they're, uh, especially when they start to work with the languages, to, to, to get into this rut of saying, well, every time this particular word occurs, it must mean this, or it has to mean that, or it has to have some different meaning, or, or some completely different uh, relationship uh, than other words. But I, I just submit to you that the ancient languages are a lot like our language. There are a lot, we have a lot of synonyms, and words can have a range of meaning. And so uh, we were talking about this in, uh, in my Sunday school class this morning because we read a verse that referred to prayers and supplications. And those are kind of two different words that have slightly different nuances or ranges of meaning, but they're referring to the same thing. A supplication is a prayer, and prayer uh, frequently involves supplication. Or uh, as I saw in um, Psalm 91 uh, in my devotions this morning, Uh, refers to God as a shield and a buckler. He's both. If you just read it very woodenly, he's our shield and our buckler. Well, what's the difference? A buckler is a shield. In this sense, the, 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 the scriptures are sort of multiplying terms to stress a point, that God is our protector. A buckler is a little tiny shield and a, you know, the, the more generic word shield refers to something probably a little bit larger. But, um, the point is, you can have multiple words in Hebrew that, that really, although there are shades of meaning, different shades of meaning in them, they refer back to one thing, and in this case, all of these words, uh, transgression, iniquity, sin, they all refer ultimately to sin. Uh, the ancient languages had synonyms too, and so um, it all points back to what our catechism says and how it defines sin. What is sin? It says in the 14th question in our shorter catechism. What is sin? And the answer is sin is any uh, 
transgression, want of, tra- want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's the definition of sin. In all these words here, iniquity, transgression, they, they're all pointing back to sin. And the ancient people of Israel and Judah had lots and lots of it. And God had been bearing with them and bearing with their transgressions and their iniquities and their sin for generations, for centuries. In round terms, God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the Promised Land roughly 1500 B.C., 1,500 years before Christ. The prophet Micah prophesied in the second half of the 8th century B.C., so between about 750 and 700 B.C. So in other words, God had put up with and he had endured 800 years of almost nonstop grumbling and infidelity and wickedness from his people. And so, to sum it up, that's the predicament. Israel, in Micah's day, deserved God's wrath and curse. They were guilty. They were under a just sentence of condemnation. And as a matter of fact, the same is true for every single one of us today. We are all guilty before God. And apart from the grace of God, we are justly under a sentence of condemnation. That's what we say when we answer those membership questions to join this church or any other church in our denomination. A person has to stand up in front of the congregation and acknowledge, I am a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in God's sovereign mercy. That's the predicament. But what the prophet speaks into this passage, because again, I say most of that is, is, is implied. It's not laid out for us in the passage. What the passage does is lay out this glorious message of pardon. Pardon for sin. The word gospel, as I'm sure you know, means good news. And this is a passage of good news. Good news for sinners. So I would have to ask at this point, have you come to terms with your sin? In in the sense that, have you come to that point where you can acknowledge that, yes, I am a sinner, and I'm not going to just push that off and say, well, but nobody's perfect. I'm a sinner. Have you reached that point? Do you have a sense or have you ever had a sense in your heart of the, of the fact that you're guilty before God? Have you ever felt conviction over your sin? If you have, then consider the message of Psalm 130, verse 4, that says there is forgiveness with God. There is forgiveness with him. That is good news. And here's the good news according to Micah. Here's the gospel according to Micah. And I I think we see four things in particular in this passage at the end of his prophecy. Number one, in verse 18 it says, God pardons iniquity. 
It doesn't deny the reality of iniquity, but it proclaims that by grace, God pardons iniquity. That word translated pardon is a Hebrew word that actually means to lift. It means in the sense of, in this sense, like to lift something as if to carry it away. It's the same word that's found in Isaiah chapter uh, 53, verse 12, speaking prophetically many, many centuries. Actually, Isaiah prophesied in the, roughly the same time frame as Micah did. And Isaiah, preaching about Christ who was to come, said he bore the sins of many. That's the same Hebrew word. He bore them. He carried them in the sense of carrying them away. That's what God does. God carries away iniquity. He removes guilt. In other words, he pardons. And that's why the word's translated that way. So he pardons iniquity. What else does God do? Also in verse 18, it said God passes over transgression. Now, you might be thinking, I wonder if that's the same word as Passover. Well, the answer is no. It's it's a different word. But a similar idea is expressed. The idea is that rather than stopping and visiting wrath upon a sinner for their transgressions, he just passes by. He passes by. Verse 19 says God treads iniquity underfoot. Treads it underfoot. The Hebrew word there is kabosh. And I was so excited. I thought, this must be where we get the, that expression, to put, put the kabosh on something. And I couldn't find that anywhere. So that's, that's actually not the case. But kabosh means to subdue, to press something down. And it implies violence. There's violence implied in that word. And so... That's the word that's used in Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. After the conquest of the land and the people all come together again, it says in Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh. And it says the land lay subdued before them. That's the word kabosh there, subdued. That's what God does to our sins. He, it's a picture of the Lord God Almighty stomping on our iniquities and eradicating them. But then finally, and and, and fourth, that God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. We see that in verse 19 as well. And that's a beautiful picture, a beautiful image of him just getting rid of our sins. But I want you to know that for for the Hebrew hearer, This would have a double significance because on the one hand, yes, casting something into the sea means that God throws away our iniquities. He throws away our sins never to be seen again. They're irretrievable. We can't get them back even if we wanted to. So there's that, and and you get the sense of that, right, from the text. But here's the other thing. The Israelites were not seafarers. They didn't really like the water that much. They preferred to stay away from it. They preferred to stay on terra firma. So if you were an Israelite hearer in Micah's day, not only was there that sense of the sins going away, being put somewhere where you'll never see them again, you'll never be able to recover them, but they were in a place that you didn't even want to go, you had no interest in. So there's that sort of double sense of it for them. And the message, of course, is clear. God gets rid of his people's sins forever. 
Sinners deserve condemnation, but in the gospel, God pardons. Well, how do we respond to that? Well, we should respond with praise. The true and living God is worthy of all praise for his mercy to sinners. And Micah gives praise to God in this passage. Because God deals graciously and in mercy with sinners, he is to be praised. And so Micah says, who is a God like you? He's astounded at the mercy of God. And he knows that there's no other God like that. So it's a rhetorical question. There is no other God like our God. It's very much like what the people of Israel said in Exodus 15 after God had led them on dry ground through the Red Sea and then destroyed their enemies by bringing the waters back on them. They cried out and in praise to God in Exodus 15, most of which is a song. It's called the Song of Moses. This is the song of praise that the people sang to God after their deliverance in the Red Sea. And they said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That's Exodus 15:11. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's the only true God. He's the only true God. There is no other real God that we could even compare him with or contrast him with for that matter. But here's the thing, even the other so-called gods, they don't forgive. They don't pardon. They don't have that chesed, that Hebrew word that refers to his covenantal love that never goes away, that's unconditional, that's rooted in his own character and his promises. The, The gods of the world don't have that. They don't forgive. And so Micah praises God because he's absolutely unique in every way, including this way. He forgives sins. He doesn't retain his anger forever, the text says. This is a wonderfully scriptural theme. Uh, In Psalm 30, verse 5, speaking of our great God, it says, For his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So you see that for anyone who's in relationship with God through faith in Christ, God's fatherly displeasure is only momentary. And I call it that deliberately. We could think of it as anger, which it is, but it's not a wrathful Condemning anger, it's a fatherly displeasure. And he disciplines his children, he disciplines every child that he receives. But his fatherly displeasure is only momentary. Or you see the same theme, same idea in Isaiah 54, verse 8, where God, speaking to his people, said, In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says the Lord, your Redeemer. So again, you have the word a moment to describe God's anger compared to his love. 
which it says is everlasting. And as we near our conclusion here, let me just introduce this, this, this thought. The reason God doesn't retain his anger against you is because he poured all of it out on his son. He spent it on Christ. He doesn't retain his anger forever, and he delights in steadfast love. There you see that phrase. And the, the ESV fairly consistently translates the Hebrew word chesed as steadfast love. <clears throat> Other versions will translate it uh, loving kindness or, or mercy. Steadfast love is two words to translate this this one Hebrew word, well, what is it? What is chesed? Chesed is God's never-changing, covenantal, redemptive love for you and for all of his people. There's that psalm, Psalm 136. And in every single verse of Psalm 136, the second half of the verse is, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever because it's founded on his own promises. Uh, one of the uh, commentators I read on this speaks of Chesed, and he wrote, God's chief attribute is steadfast love. It's not just that he practices it, he delights in it. So that's what we see in verse 20. You will, show you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. You see, God's steadfast love is founded on his own promises. And at the end of that verse, you saw faithfulness and steadfast love. Usually when those two terms occur in Scripture, in the Old Testament, and they do very frequently, they're reversed. They're the other way around. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, but here you have, uh, you have the, 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 the statement from the prophet ending on the note of that steadfast love. So this passage, these verses that close out Micah's prophecy are a celebration of the redeeming love of God. Now, it says here that he does not retain his anger forever. There are other places in Scripture, however, there are a few, for instance, uh, Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1, that speaks of people with whom the Lord is angry forever. In other words, he does retain his anger toward them. And in Malachi, the specific people group he's referring to are the Edomites, the people of the nation of Edom. So here in Micah, you've got faithfulness to Jacob, but in Malachi, you've got perpetual anger that's not or that is retained towards Edom. What's the difference? Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, and in Scripture, these two brothers who, who became the fathers, each of them, of nations, they're emblems of two basic categories of humanity. Those who are in covenant with God through faith in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. In a passage we read not long ago from, from Romans, 
described them that way and spoke of how they were in the womb at the same time. They were twins. They had the same father, same mother. And yet God, before either of them had done anything, good or evil, said the older will serve the younger. So the difference between those with whom God uh, is angry forever and those against whom he doesn't uh, hold his anger forever, the difference is Christ. The difference is Christ. No one comes to God except through him. Christ is the fountain of mercy. And so when we were talking about pardon, does God carry away sins? Yes, he does. How? He carries them away through his son, who is the sin bearer. Does God pass over transgression? He does. Because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Does God tread our iniquity underfoot? He does, but he does it by crushing his son, his beloved son, Jesus, in the winepress of his wrath. Does God cast off our sins? Does he cast them into the depths of the sea? Yes, because he lays them on his son, our Savior. He heaps all our sins upon the Savior and then casts him off for us in our stead. For everyone who puts their trust in Christ, God transferred all the guilt of all your sins to his Son, and then he poured out his wrath on him in your stead. All the promises of God have their yea and their amen in Christ. They are assured and fulfilled through him. No other God personally accomplishes and secures forgiveness for his people. Who is a God like this God we serve? No other God does that. The steadfast love of our God is sure because of the work of Christ. That's why Micah praises him. And that's why we should too. Let's do that now. Father, we are amazed. We were amazed this morning and we're amazed this evening that you forgive sins. Thank you that with you there is forgiveness. And we thank you that that forgiveness is offered freely through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his redemptive work in behalf of sinners. Lord, we receive that, and we pray that you would strengthen us in our walk, strengthen us in our faith in him, and may we proclaim him to a world that needs to hear about him, a world that's justly under your condemnation. May we lead people to Christ, the fountain of mercy. We pray all this in his name. Amen.